people say that hindsight is 2020, Barry, and that is the biggest lie that ever was because hindsight has very poor vision. <laughs> Your ego gets in the way, it makes a lot of things up. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearned Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Deanna Kander, New York Times bestselling author, entrepreneur, and keynote speaker. Deanna has spent her career challenging assumptions, asking thought-provoking questions, and has more inspirational anecdotes than anyone else I know. In fact, you should check out her $1 experiment from her TED Talk. I reference them and use it all the time. She's a serial entrepreneur who entered the United States as a refugee. She's launched and sold millions of dollars worth of products and services. Her books, all in startup and a curiosity muscle, are packed with ways of catalyzing growth, both personally and for businesses. You're going to get so many smart tips and tricks that lead to innovation in this show. So before we get started, let's figure out where it began for her. My story is the story of unlearning. My family escaped from the Soviet Union when I was eight years old and moved to the United States. And my parents showed up. They spoke no English. They had $260 and they needed to get jobs. They got minimum wage jobs at TJ Maxx and Pizza Hut, and they could barely provide for our family. So first, they had to unlearn everything they knew from a different country and start from scratch. And then once they kind of got their footing, they were like, this is a terrible way to provide for our family. So my parents started a business when I was in middle school. It was a dental laboratory. They make crowns for people's teeth. And they had no capital, no connections, barely spoke English at the time. But they quickly realized that they had very limited upward mobility in the companies that they were working in. And so they had to start something on their own. And they started this business. By the time I was in law school, they were now going from the lowest income bracket where we needed help just to survive to the top income bracket and now supporting 16, 17 different families with really good paying jobs. And when I saw that, I got the bug for entrepreneurship, for innovation. That's really where it started for me. I really wanted to go into business, but my parents really wanted me to do something safe, get a good education, get a nice paying job. And I was terrified of my parents, you know, immigrant parents are very scary. Yeah. It's so fascinating as well, especially with immigrant families, right? They, they're entrepreneurial and sometimes they kind of force their children into these sort of very like boxed jobs, like go be a doctor, go be a lawyer, go be a architect. Right. Yeah. It's so fascinating. So like, what were some of the traits you think that really inspired you that maybe you saw in your parents that maybe they didn't even see in themselves? Like, What were the things that sort of when you think that you look back at, like that really inspired you that what they were role models in many ways? I mean, they created something out of nothing, which is the essence of innovation and entrepreneurship. You know, my parents asked our family dentist for a crown to try on. That's how they got started. My dad built the first lab in our family basement. Everything was just scrapping together what you could create and it's turned into this huge behemoth of a company. And that inspired me, like you can start with literally nothing and then create something out of it. And that's really what I had the bug for. So you invest in all this time, right? Like law school's no 
easy feat, right? Like it's a lot of hard work, lot, yes. like, you know, you've got to really understand detail oriented type work. So how, you know, you finish university, you're sort of standing there and how, how do you start taking some of your first steps to become on your own entrepreneurial adventure? Because law feels so rigorous, right? That sure. there's precedence sure. on everything. You know, the, the way the law changes is very, sometimes infrequently. And yet so much of entrepreneurism feels the opposite of that. So I, what were some of the things that were similar and some of the things that, you know, you surprised yourself you had to do differently or, or unlearn to some extent? I thought that being a lawyer was my way in to the boardroom to help CEOs make decisions. And when I first started working at a large law firm, I quickly realized that it definitely wasn't. That if I wanted to get into that boardroom, it was going to take me 10, 15, 20 years just to be able to be thought of as somebody who could help in those situations. And so I said, well, I'm just going to go be the CEO instead. And that's a very different mindset from, well, here are all the problems that could come up with this situation to, I just got to make it work. And it's a completely different way of thinking about it. So what was one of the first sort of assumptions that you thought was going to be the way it would work? And as soon as you got into the entrepreneurial adventure was totally defunct or invalidated or what were some of those sort of classic mistakes as you look back now that you would say you would do differently to yourself if you were starting again? Well, I was really lucky. The first three companies I was involved with were somebody else's idea. So I was a minority partner in somebody else's venture. So it was their idea, their money that was funneling the learning that I was getting. And they were not great ideas. (laughs) I mean, they didn't work. The first business that I was involved with was the only company that never made any money. And they got, you know, a little bit better each time, but each one of those learnings allowed me to kind of sit back and be like, okay, make sure you do this when you start a business, make sure you don't do this when you start a business. And so the fourth company I started where I own the majority for the first time, it was able to be successful, but only because of the learnings in the first three. So what's your favorite anecdote? Because I love your anecdotes. You have so many great ones. From maybe when you started the company that, yeah. you know, that you look back and go, oh, that was such a, a howler of a mistake. I wish I could do that differently or what you took away from it for the next iteration. Sure. So I will tell you my greatest unlearning story. And that is I started this company. I'm the first time majority owner. And the first year in business, I made like seventy, eighty thousand $80,000. And I was pretty proud of myself. And there was this big program for high growth companies in our city. And I really wanted to be a part of it because they wanted companies to be like $100 million in three years. And I was like, I need to get in that program. (laughs) And so I like tracked down the guy who ran the program and I call it stalk and awed him. I just, this is a different story of how I got him to meet with me. But basically I made my pitch and I said, you know, I started this company. It's going pretty well. I think I can make $100,000 my second year. If I'm in your program, I could do even better. And he says to me, you know, $100,000, that's not really interesting to me. You can be in the program if you make a million dollars next year. And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. I, like, I didn't even hear what he said. I just heard like, you can be in the program. And I remember very distinctly how like my heart sank as soon as I touched the doorknob to exit his office. And I thought to myself, like, did he just say a million dollars? And so I didn't even leave 
like the office. I walked outside his door, found an empty cubicle that was maybe like 10 feet away, got out a blank piece of paper and wrote down everything that I did that year to make $70,000. And if I did that like 20 hours a day working nonstop, how much could I possibly make doing those things? And the answer was like $150,000. It was literally impossible for me to do what I was doing and get to that goal. So I flipped the piece of paper over and I wrote a million dollars at the top and I started working backwards. So if I'm going to make a million dollars, what kinds of problems do I need to solve for what kinds of customers? And from that day on, I completely changed my business model. And the second year in business, I didn't hit a million, but I hit 800,000 in revenue, which is like a thousand percent growth only because somebody said to me, can you make a million? And that process of unlearning, I, I call him my provocateur. It wouldn't have happened if somebody didn't make me believe that it was possible. Yeah, no, I love this story. So good. You know, I think one of the things we talk a lot about is this notion of thinking big and how important it is to break you free of your existing mindset and behavior. You know, like I love that you went in and you wrote down on one side of the piece of paper, if I just do what I'm doing now harder with more effort, what can I crank out of that system? And and you maybe got a 50% improvement. (laughs) Right, yeah. And then I love how you flip it then and go, right, let's think even bigger. Like let's take 10 times, you know, that sort of revenue. I'm going to have to do things fundamentally different than I'm doing today to get there. And I think that's one of the, I think one of the things that's really important about like thinking big is to sort of break free of just the existing thinking, the existing behaviors of just do what I'm doing now harder. I'm not going to get that a thousand percent increase. But if I think about this sort of much bigger goal and work backwards and then start smaller with some little small steps to sort of build to a million. It changes the way you think, it changes the way you behave. So what were some of those like changes that you made that were different from the business that you had? You know, you, it's still a successful business, but as you're trying to get this like a thousand percent improvement, what were some of the small little steps you took to start changing the way that business model worked? What were some of the things that came to your mind to sort of have to have that huge sort of improvement? But I imagine you started small and built up from there. I mean, it's a really crazy thing to say now, but the kinds of customers that you go after are the kinds of customers that you'll get. So I was going after things that were accessible to me, you know, the smaller businesses. And instead, I started trying to figure out how to go after the bigger companies. And it takes longer to make those sales, but it's much more worth it at the end of the day. And so I just changed, you know, there were certain sizes of companies that just weren't able to be the kind of business that I needed. So I said no to them. I figured it was the first time that I figured out what kind of business I was going to say no to, which allowed me to go after the things that I wanted. When you're an entrepreneur, it's so scary to say no to anybody. So right. And making that decision, like, I can't do business with these people because they'll prevent me, they'll keep me busy to go after this business. That was the big aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is great. It, it reminds me, I had Amy Jo Kim on the show a while ago, and uh, she's the author of Game Thinking and focuses very much on these very specific narrow markets of customers who really are going to be the customers to help you grow the business that you want to grow. And focusing really tightly on that market and saying no, right? This is such a great 
part of strategy work. Like good strategy means you say no. And I think it's so hard for people when they're starting a business, right? The anxiety is so high that any time the phone rings, you're like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. What, what is it? And, and it takes some, you know, being bold, being brave to sort of stick to that. What were some of the things that helped you when that phone rang and it was the, the customer you wanted, it's easy to sort of double down on. But when it was the customer that was familiar to you or felt easy for you, or how did you turn them down? How did you, turn, did you have to turn down any of the customers you had the year before as well? I'm curious on some of these ideas. So I, I firmly believe in making everybody better off or having interacted with you. So I would just find them tools and resources to solve their problems without being the one to do it for them. And I actually had to go through this process twice. So now fast forward three years into my company. Now we're doing about $100,000 a month in revenue, maybe more. It's growing, but our profits are going down. And it was very confusing. And I started doing a, like a really thorough accounting of all of our customers. And it turned out that about 10% of our customers at the time were subsidizing the other 90%. So like 10% were so profitable they were hiding the fact that we were losing time and money servicing the other 90%. And I made a really difficult decision to fire 90% of our existing customers. And it's a funny story because I was thinking about it in quarters. So it was we were going to start with second quarter, but second quarter starts on April 1st. So I sent out letters firing a lot of our customers on April Fool's Day. And they were like, is this real? Is this really happening? And I was like, I'm so sorry, but twice I have to do this now. <laughs> um, and that process, you know, a lot of my employees were really nervous because they felt like they were very productive. And that's what the wrong kind of business feels like. It feels like you're doing a good job. People are happy, but it was losing money to the company. And we were hiding that by the few customers that were really profitable. And when we were able to do that, it, it was very scary to do. But we, again, made room to get the kinds of customers that we wanted and really grow both revenue and profitability. What's fantastic for me about this story is like digging into the data and like asking harder questions. A lot of entrepreneurs, businesses, product development teams, you know, they don't do that. It hurts, right? Like I, I always think when you have good metrics and good insight and look at the reality of how your business is operating you know, you do find some of those difficult moments, right? Where maybe it is one or two customers that are keeping your business afloat. Maybe you have to get rid of certain customers to grow to the next level. Like that's, they're tough questions to face into. But if you're serious about trying to grow your business and committing to this idea of, you know, who these, the sweet spot of these customers are that are going to help you grow your business, make it successful, it sometimes means letting go of the existing customers you have. And this is hard. I've seen product teams really struggle with that, making those decisions. I think that you use the data to sort of help in, inform and make that conversation easier is very, very important. How do you bring the team on board with that? Because I think that's another real challenge for people is how do they do that? I mean, the first thing I would share is growth is impossible without letting go of something. You know, all these people are making New Year's resolutions and they're adding things that they're gonna do now, but they're not doing step two, which is, well, what am I gonna stop doing in order to make this new strategy or New Year's resolution happen? 
And that's what I just try to impart on organizations as much as possible. At the same time, you're making your growth plans. You need to be making a list of things that you will stop doing in order to free up time in order to do that. And it was really difficult to bring the company on board. I mean, I showed them the math and they were like, ah, it feels productive. Our customers love us. Why would we do this? And they had all this free time now, you know, because they felt like it was productive. And it, I had to show them instead of convince them that it was going to work. I feel like just going, hell yeah, to all these statements, <laughs> right? Like, um, well, it, like it resonates so much, right, with the, the unlearning piece, you know, and you're talking here in, for us in terms of companies, but I think with people as well, like you mentioned New Year's resolutions ideas. If you're trying to grow or I'm trying to grow as a person, it does mean I have to let go of some of my old mindset, my old behaviors that are, that are holding me back. And growth, yeah, add something every day and take something away every day. You know, like that's evolution for me, both at a personal level as, and as you're saying, at a business level. And it's very easy to sort of trick ourselves when we're putting in lots of effort, when we're creating lots of output, when we're busy, 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 that it's driving results. But I think, again, what you're highlighting is this idea of outcome, looking at your data, looking at the profitability that each one of these clients are driving, like what outcomes are these customers creating? And I think that pattern, it should be for humans ourselves too, is like, when we're trying to grow as a person, you know, what outcomes are we really driving? If we're trying to get fitter, you know, is our mile time going down if we're running? Is our, whatever you're focused on, or getting to those outcomes and defining them, I think are so powerful that that's where people really make progress. Where if you're just looking at output and activity and busyness, it's easy to sort of trick yourself into believing that, that it's, everything's going to be fine. Everything's being okay. And yet, you know, so many of these companies are focusing on customers with no profitability that just keep them busy, right? Or folks are adding and adding more. I'm going to try this experiment on myself and another one, another one, another one. And they're doing so much stuff. There's no sort of signal to noise. They've no sense of what's actually working for them or not. And I think that's something that's really, really important for people to sort of take away from these stories that you're sharing, or are they certainly that resonate with me at least? You know, we talked about the importance of saying no, but I think people are really misguided on how they say yes to things as well. People think about whether they're going to do something in a yes or no binary option. And you should be thinking about it on a scale of one to 10. Because if you think about it on a scale of one to 10, when you say yes, you're probably saying yeses to like twos, threes, and fours, basically anything that's just not a horrible idea. And you're allowing yourself to get sucked into things that aren't really creating value. If instead you focus on a one to 10 scale, instead of saying like, should I or shouldn't I, is this a seven, eight, nine, or 10, then you're going to make much more higher quality yeses and really focus your time on the things that matter. Two years ago, I was in the midst of this challenge myself as trying to grow my own business, right? And I had a great conversation with a lady called Teresa Torres. Uh, she was on the show as well. She is like the master of focus. I would describe her. She like knows, she knows exactly what her business is about. She knows exactly who her customers are. And she's like committed to them, you know, like, and if, if they don't fall within that window, she's like, that's a no. Yeah. And to your, to your point as well, 
about this, yes, she has this notion of saying, hell yeah, if it, if something's not like a, a, an opportunity comes and she's like, that's a hell yeah, then I'll do it. If it's just a yeah or a seven or a four or a three, she just doesn't do it. And it really inspired me to the point where I ended up like writing this, what turned into a blog as well for myself about prioritizing for impact. What are the things I'm going to say yes to? And what are the things I'm going to say no to? I went through this exercise of like writing down this sort of whole letter to myself, describing to myself, where do I have the most impact? Who are the types of customers that work well with me? Who don't? What's it like working with me? What are the principles that I value? Because what I constantly find is it's very rarely the actual, like the work opportunity that pops up is the thing that is, will help me know if something's going to work out or not. What I discovered through this process is it's much more about the values of the people. If people value the same things as me, we always end up finding ways to work through the difficult parts of doing hard work, right? Because there are hard times. Things don't work as you plan. We hope something that we try will work and it fails miserably and costs us money and time. And so how do people respond in those moments? That's what makes collaboration successful for me. You know, all of the best sort of projects I've been on were hard and we made mistakes and we struggled, but the team came together as a result of that. One comes to mind where I was working with uh, Channel 4, they're a TV company in the UK, and they were trying to find new ways to like generate revenue because ad revenue is just disappearing from television. And they came up with this idea that you could sort of collect their content in a scrapbook and all the great content they had Jamie Oliver as a cook and you could take his recipes and put it in your own little scrapbook and they'd build it together and you know they could monetize that data. It was really interesting and they wanted to go to the clouds to do it. They'd never done that before. And there was this team where we had like five or six different groups, different companies that had to come together to deliver this. And right away, those kind of things could be catastrophic, right? Because when something goes wrong, yeah, you're smiling, yeah. Everyone's like pointing the finger at somebody else. But what I learned from that is that what we had a, the first failure. We sat down and did a retrospective. And one of the things we put up was this, in Agile, there's a, a thing called the Prime Directive, where it really says, regardless of what we discovered, we really believe everyone did the best they could with the information they had at the time. Like that's a belief we all shared. And it really resonated with everyone to the point that we put it up in the team wall. And it really crystallized that team that when we were making mistakes, nobody would blame, oh, it was the testing group's problem or it was the content creator's problem. We owned it all as a team. And we went on and built this amazing product in tough circumstances, which was such a, a sort of great moment for me to learn about how important values are and aligning on values and believing and living them. Because when you hit these hard moments, it's the people that instantiate them, that walk the talk of the words on the wall. Like that's what really matters. To the point about this saying, yes, now I've written my values and principles about if this is what it's like to work with me. If you believe in these things, we're going to work well together. It'll be a hell yeah. But if you don't believe in these things, and you've different expectations and you go into that, it's not going to be a hell yeah. It's actually going to be a, this is not what I expected. And it's going to be tough and horrible. And you should say no. That's sort of, to your point about 
how you have the confidence to make these tough decisions to find out like working with the right people, the right customers to help grow and do the best work you can possibly do. I think that was a huge breakthrough for me. And uh, spawning from uh, these, you know, lessons that you're sharing and Teresa helped me think about, I think it's so important to commit to that. I think you're talking about a rubric for making these decisions. So it's not like you just sit and think, oh, that's an eight or that's a three. You know, I have a list of five or six different things that, and it can change from quarter to quarter or year to year. But these are the things that are important to me right now. I just had a baby. So like not traveling is really important to me. So I'm more likely to consider something a nine if I could do it from my Zoom, you know, at home it changes all the time. So it's important to take a step back and think about that rubric. What's important at this moment for you over the next year? And let's rank things, every opportunity in each one of these six or seven milestones. Like, do they fit my values? Will I get to learn new things? Is it a cool company I want to learn more about? And then once you get the average of those numbers, that's what makes the decision for me. My simple brain cannot do that level of calculation on its own. I have to use an Excel spreadsheet to put things into that will say, you know what, it felt like a good idea because it had a lot of money associated to it, but every other item on the rubric was poor. So this is a no, and it will allow me to create space for the yeses. Yeah, it's great. I know we're both fans of decision-making and like ways to help Keep do that well, right? And even catalog, like all, all this stuff is so interesting to me, right? I love that you're saying that your decision-making rubric is alive. It's not like do it once and it, it goes up on the wall and it never changes for the history of time, right? It's, it's alive and it's living as you're sort of, you know, doing new things and experiencing what works, what doesn't, your different circumstances change. I think we've talked a little bit about this before on, on social in some respects, like Ways to sort of catalog decisions is always kind of really fascinating to me, right? Because, you know, we make decisions every day. You ask people, are you good at making decisions? Everyone's like, yeah, sure. I make a hundred decisions a day, you know? <laughs> and then when you ask them, like, how do you know you're making good decisions? Going back and sort of like reflecting, you know, so one of the things I have is a decision diary, like when I'm making tough decisions, I try and like map out these sort of checklisty questions that help me go like, what data do I have? What do I not have? What are some of the assumptions I ha- I'm making here? What do I think might happen? What's the best case scenario? Worst case scenario? What am I missing? Who, have I had a dissenting opinion? What did they say? These kind of things really help me, as you say, it's like a, a mental sort of arithmetic to sort of make sure I'm making these decisions with my eyes as open as I think I can at the time. And then it's great to have them to go back and look at. What are some of the other methods you use when you're doing this type of stuff? Yeah, I I love your article on the decision journal. It's really, really thorough and just inspired me to think about all the different places in my life that I wanted to use that kind of methodology. When I talk to individuals about this, I like to ask them what percent of their daily decisions they feel like are wrong. And when I say wrong, it's like could have been much better or literally the opposite of the right decision. And most people, they'll say 5%, 10%. The actual answer, according to game theory and people who study decision-making for a living, is at the peak of your career, probably 50% of your decisions are wrong because 
One, you may have limited information on which you're making the decision. The information might change after you make a decision or like bad luck intervenes and it was a bad decision for no doing of your own. Okay, so let's assume that 50% of our decisions are incorrect. Then wouldn't you want to know which 50% as quickly as possible? Let's not just go through life assuming that all of our decisions are awesome and until we get evidence to the contrary, we're going to keep moving forward. Let's have little things that we're monitoring. I call them pivot indicators, but just like things that you're looking for that will let you know when those decisions are the incorrect ones. And I think that's the key to not just putting your decisions down, but saying, how will I know if this was a bad decision? How will I know if I need to save my resources to pivot and do something else? Yeah. And you know, what's great about this is it ties almost right back to when you're in the entrepreneurial mode and trying to grow your business, right? Like we make hundreds of decisions a day. There's lots of output of decisions that we make, but how many people are looking at the outcome of those decisions? Like, is it driving the results we expected? So just like when you're in the product company and you've got a hundred customers, but only four or five of them really are the ones you want to grow with. You know, I make a hundred decisions a day, but really, you know, maybe only two or three of them are actually good. I think that this pattern just shows up again and again. It's one of the things I think that helps people make progress in uncertain situations. It's like putting these like little systems in place, really monitoring what outcomes are being driven from the choices you make, whether it's to grow your business, to pick a different customer, right down to a simple decision about you, you make hundreds of those a day, I think are super important. People say that hindsight is twenty twenty, Barry, and that is the biggest lie that ever was because hindsight has very poor vision. <laughs> your ego gets in the way. It makes a lot of things up. If you've ever had an argument with somebody that you loved that was passionate and you had very strong opinions on both sides, you'll know that you came out of that situation with very different opinions of what happens. And that's hindsight. It is not 2020. So you need to have something, a written document, that's my husband's wish that we had a stenographer for every fight, but you need some kind of written argument about what's actually happening and the decisions that you're actually making if you want to improve on the quality of your decision. Awesome. So looking forward now, right? Like we've been through like, God, maybe a year to forget and maybe we have another year to forget already ahead of us. What are some of the things that you're sort of excited about, interested about, or most importantly, curious, right? What are the things that you're sort of dialing into? So my progression in innovation has been from entrepreneurship lessons, which is like, what are the logistics of how you innovate, run experiments, iterate? to how do you build a culture of innovation inside of an organization to now I'm really focused on how do you lead people through innovation? Because my biggest aha over the last year of working with clients is that managing people is really difficult. Managing people through innovation is significantly more difficult. There's a lot more opportunities for fear to really go into your workplace and create a self-preservation mindset for people. Not on purpose, they're just scared about the unknown and being uncomfortable. And so how do you as a leader create an environment to help people get through an innovation project or a big transformation in a company? That's really where I'm spending my time. 
that's a fascinating space as well at the moment, right? Like I think so many people are just coping with the transition from working in an office to working at home and trying to do uncertainty work in an uncertain environment is it's like a, a, a double, double down moment, you know? What have been some of the little tips or strategies that you've discovered that have helped people sort of get through that and maybe have some breakthroughs? The biggest thing that I've discovered is that a lot of times when leaders think that they're helping, they're doing things to support their team, it's actually stressing their team out even more and forcing them further into that space. And so the key for a manager is to think about how do I help or coach without triggering a stress response in the people that I work with? And what are those indicators that I'll create on my team to let me know when my team is not in a good place for innovation work? You can't just get a bullwhip and cause people to be creative and problem solvers. It's not the same as building parts on a machine. You need their like full brain, their full heart. And the only way to do that is to put them in an environment where they're not scared or they're not burned out. Yeah, and no, this resonates a lot. You know, I think even for managers, right? I think so many managers have been sort of programmed also to look for a lot of visual cues, right? Like walking around the office and seeing our people at their desks or people talking to one another. And it, remote working took all that, those sort of cues away to a certain extent. You know, and I've seen a lot of leaders then, because they're missing that cue, they start asking for more information from people. Yes, like, well, what, yes. what are you doing now? Or what are you working on now? Or Which again, to your point of this sort of focus and where people are putting their energy, if they're constantly reporting on what they're doing, it takes time away for them to do the work that you want them to do. That's definitely a, a pattern I would encourage people to look out for is maybe you don't need the team to report every day on what the hell they're doing. Like you've got to sort of give them the space and the time to work on what they're aiming for. And as you say, put, create your pivot points, your indicators to tell you, are they making progress in the way you're hoping? And if they're not, then that's a cue to maybe intervene. Yeah. But if they are, great, like stay out of the way, let them keep doing awesome. And, and you might be amazed by some of the results. Yeah, there are like three layers of accountability for people. They can either be accountable on a task level or on a process level or on an outcome level. And most managers stay at the task level. Like, are you doing this? Are you doing this? And if somebody passes all the tests that you've set up for them at the task level, let's let them move up to the process level. If they do well there, then let's just trust them to get to the outcome level. But they have to have a path for getting there. Otherwise, you're going to burn them out. That's such an awesome tip for people to tune into, uh, Diana. So listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It's always fun talking to you. I always learn a bunch. I'm always inspired with new ideas for myself. So thank you for spending time with us today to share all of that. It's my pleasure, Barry. Thanks so much for inviting me. Awesome. <laughs>